Hi, and welcome to Cause Pods. I'm your host, Matthew Passy. Here at Cause Pods, we have one simple mission to highlight the amazing folks who are using podcasts as a way to raise awareness for good causes. Whether it's a nonprofit they work with, a charity they support, a social justice campaign they're championing, a medical condition they're battling, or someone who's just looking to make a positive impact on their local community, state, country, or the world. These are podcasters with a positive mission. Along with raising awareness for our guests' favorite cause, we're also going to see if we can raise some money to support their efforts. So make sure you check out the show notes for each episode at causepods.org to learn more about what they're doing and how to help them achieve their goals. Something very different here on Cause Pods this week. We typically feature a lot of medical-based shows or, you know, different causes that, you know, we, we tend to get a few of the same themes over and over again. But today we are doing something very, very different. And of course, I'm excited to bring you some new and interesting content. We are chatting with Lou Hastings. He is the host of the Red Road Radio Show. Boom, nailed it on the first try. Lou heard me stumble across that as I was checking it with him. Uh, this is a show that is all about basically the challenges and the issues that are facing the Indian nation of the United States. These are the, the stories and the issues that just normally don't get covered by the mainstream media. And Lou takes us there and you know shares what's going on. The whole thing is brought to you by the Native Now Foundation. That's a 501c3 that is helping this community. Lou, it is a pleasure to have you here on CauseBots today. Thank you so much, Matthew. I really appreciate the invite. It's great to be on your show. Oh, thank you. And it's a pleasure to finally make this happen because we talked about doing this. Was it this past MapCon or was it two years ago that we first had this conversation? You know, it it was two years ago, as a matter of fact. Oh, wow. Well, I'm glad we're finally making it happen. So take us back, Lou. Like, what made you want to start Red Road Radio in the first place? Great question. So I had been doing a local business show on one of the radio stations down here in Florida, So I was the executive director of a chamber of commerce down here. And what I was doing was I was interviewing local businesses to be on the radio. And that kind of ran its course, you know, as with anything where you're in a small community, you get through all of your, all of your businesses and no one really wants to come on twice. Although I did have some businesses that wanted to come on twice. We pretty much ran the gamut on the show. It lasted a little over a year and I went to the station manager and I said, you know, I have a, I have an idea for another show. It's a lot different from what I've been doing, but it really aligned with my nonprofit that I started the native now foundation. And they said, great, let's, let's do it. And we've been doing it ever since. So we're four years in now on the red road radio show and still going strong. We're on a couple of networks and a couple of radio stations now. I guess maybe even take us back a little bit further. Why this nonprofit? Like, what was it that had you interested in sovereignty and self-determination for Native American communities? Sure. So I have been visiting Indian reservations since really my earliest memory when I was four. My father was in the military. We traveled around the country a lot. And it just so happened that we ended up visiting these different Native nations. And as I got older, I started reading a lot. I started uh, getting into the history. I was a huge history buff and a history major. In fact, 
uh, archaeology and anthropology is what I went to school with in Rutgers University, and prehistoric Native American was my specialty. So this has always been something that I've followed throughout my life. And it occurred to me probably somewhere in the early 90s, after going to visit these reservations as an adult, that there's really not a lot of attention being paid in the mainstream media, as you pointed out in your introduction. And also, there's very little help for some of the communities out there. You'd be really surprised what you find as you travel around the country. If you visited Native nations, you see that there's a lot of work that really needs to be done. So I started the nonprofit in 2013, and it made sense as the next step to have the Red Road Radio Show support that mission. And I guess, I mean, maybe I'm, I missed the obvious here, or I don't remember, but you yourself, you're not Native American. Is that correct? I'm not. If you go back several generations, you can find some in- indigenous history in my family tree, but by now, all of that is is not in my blood anymore. And so I find it so fascinating that you have taken on this cause, that you are championing this cause, even though it's not necessarily direct heritage of yours. Does not having that direct connection ever create pushback from the issues and the topics and the people that you cover and talk to? Not really. Great question, though. I I think that at this point, over the years, I've established a lot of friends, a lot of connections, and even family now in different indigenous communities. In fact, in the Lakota Nation, there's a sacred ceremony called the Hunka ceremony, and it is basically translates to the making of relatives. And there is a, a brother of mine. His name is Ted Eagle. He lives on the Cheyenne River Reservation in South Dakota. Uh, he decided a couple of years ago that since I kept on showing up to help on the Cheyenne River Reservation, that that he wanted to make me a relative. He wanted to make me a brother. And there's a big ceremony, and uh, it's it's sacred that you have to go through in order to make this happen. So I consider it a part of my family obligation to continue this work. That's that's incredible. So let's talk about some of the biggest issues that you have been tackling and some of the, the real pain points that you're seeing. You know, what are right now today, and I'm sure it's always evolving and I'm sure, you know, it's constantly changing, but you know, what are your like top two or three priorities right now that you think need the most attention, the most coverage that we as everyday Americans simply ignore, don't see, don't care about, or just aren't aware that it's an issue? That is a huge question. So there, there are so many. <laughs> the floor is yours. Enjoy. <laughs> yeah. So many um, issues that I think are important. But if I had to pick a few, certainly tribal sovereignty is is the largest concern of all of the native nations in this country. By the way, there are 574 federally recognized tribes in this country. I think a lot of people don't know that. There is a lot of history that we are not taught in school. I think it's it's glossed over what 
sort of happened in this country when it comes to indigenous people and indigenous communities. And these communities are still there. They're still out there. And a lot of folks, even though there are no hard borders around these reservations, it's tough to leave your home. It's tough to leave your relatives, whether they're alive or they've walked on. It's tough to leave that land. And it's tough to live on that land. And the government of the United States doesn't really recognize the issues of living on those reservations, whether that's resources, whether that is, and it's truly complex. When you look into Indian rights and and Indian laws, it's really a complex issue that I don't think our government does a very good job in working out. Some of those things include resource extraction. Of course, when I say that, we're talking about oil and natural gas being extracted from areas that are sacred to this country's original people, these First Nation people. And you would hear this maybe in, in some of the activist communities, but it is true. You wouldn't want people walking into your family's cemetery and start digging holes anywhere that they want just to extract something to gain wealth. There's a lot of complicated negotiations that should be taking place before this happens. And this is a huge concern for indigenous people. Look, I know there's been some recent headlines about what the government has and hasn't done, you know, whether in their willful mistreatment of this community or in just negligence as far as not taking care of them. Is that specific to one side or is it pretty much across the board that this is just a forgotten community? I think for the most part, it's, it is a forgotten community. And and I can't figure out really why that is so. When there's no excuse now to not see through social media, through the, uh, the ability to discuss things nation to nation, that's what the treaties were built on, this government to government relationship. And I truly believe, and if you look at some of the the news and some of the reporting that comes out of Indian country, I truly believe that our government in Washington does not uphold their end of the bargain when it comes to government to government consultation. The decision-making that happens in Washington affects all of us, but I don't think, not, not that I don't think, I know that it is not a consideration for the First Nations people in this country. And, and I can tell you exactly why. They represent 1% of the voting population of the United States of America. And that is not a large enough demographic to, to listen to. How many presidents in the history of this country have gone to Native nations and spoken to the leadership there. Two. Two in the history of this country who've ever visited. That is a, a travesty. There's something wrong with that. 
There's something called the uh, Historic Preservation Act that is in force in this country. And there is a section in that Historic Preservation Act that clearly specifies that if there is a decision that is made by the United States that affects or impacts Native communities, that there has to be consultation and consent before anything moves forward. I don't know if you remember a couple of years ago, there was an issue with the Dakota Access Pipeline out in North Dakota that had the Standing Rock Reservation up in arms because it came very close to their border, number one. It did cross treaty territory and it went under the Missouri River or it was proposed to go under the Missouri River, which is the, the, that's the water intake for the reservation. And they quoted this Historic Preservation Act and the Army Corps of Engineers and the, the federal government just blew it off. And that pipeline is currently pumping oil right through that pipeline that they built through the treaty land and, and underneath the Missouri River. Right, like that story got a little bit of of mainstream coverage, but it did. You know, probably mostly because of all the activism and all the people that went out there to protest and you know make a make a big deal about this. Right. So, you know, if someone hearing this who, and let's be honest, the large majority of the population that would potentially be listening to this are not Native American, most likely. They, they could be interested. They could be hearing this and, you know, thinking about the plight of these people and, and wanting to do something like what would be your suggestion? You know, what would be your sort of call to action to these folks for what they could do to help to kind of erase this blight on our on our society that we have that this the way we treat this community is just it's just wrong. Whether you want to argue it that we shouldn't be here at all, or, you know, whether you're okay, like these are still just humans living in this country. You know, what can we do to improve the situation and just be more equitable to anybody in this community? I think you nailed it. You you absolutely nailed it by saying, number one, they're human beings, right? They are other human beings that occupy this space. They're also American citizens. Matthew, if you go to some of these reservations, and I really hate to bring this up because it's, it seems to be, this is the hard part, right? When you talk about conditions in some of the reservation communities that are out there, but it is also a reality. The communities don't want people to focus on the poverty as much as they want them to focus on them being Americans, being treated as human beings, being treated as people with rights and actually more intense rights because they have treaties on the books between their nation and the United States government. So it should be even more important. So I think the call to action would be awareness, right? Uh, Obviously, I'm going to say, listen to the Red Road Radio Show. You would be surprised. So I've I've set up uh, Google Alerts so that I get news stories about treaties, about sovereignty, about reservations dumped into my inbox every single morning. You'd be surprised how much news is out there. But 
they all end up in small local newspapers or news stations that are in and around, I should really say around because there are very few within reservation boundaries around these reservations, but it doesn't get out to impact the greater society. And I think that if the awareness was there, if people knew more about the truth, the news, the treaties, the, the history, and what the law is. I know everybody, when, once they hear law, they go, oh, God, I am so, I'm going to start to nod off. <laughs> but it's true. We need to know if someone is breaking the law, that it needs to be addressed. And we're, we're all about that in our everyday life. But it seems that when, when it comes to government, we, we allow them because we think they, they must know better, right? We've elected them to know better. And for a lot of these officials, and I don't, I don't want this to sound like a U.S. government bashing session because it is not, right? I support our government wholeheartedly. I live in this country too. But for a government that is jam-packed with a lot of lawyers – it sure does seem that they don't pay attention a whole lot to uh, United States policy when it comes to treaties with First Nation people. It boggles my mind. And the only thing that I could come up with, Matthew, is that they're 1% of the voting block. And that's very distressing to me. So I think that that's probably the biggest call to action is to educate yourself, find out what it is that is going on in this country. And it doesn't matter where you are with 574 federally recognized tribes and more recognized by state. I would say wherever you are in this country, go and visit your local reservation in some way, shape or form. Meet with people there and talk to them and find out what their concerns are. It's akin to Doctors Without Borders, right? They go to places where there is an immediate need. Some of the reservations in this country are in immediate need. If you walk in to some places, it literally looks like a third world country. And your mind goes, how can this be in our country? We're, these are Americans. How can this be? So, I mean, and you could probably hear it in my voice. That's where my passion comes from. I visited so many reservations in this country. Uh, I just got back from an extended work assignment in Seattle. And while I was out there, I probably visited almost a dozen different reservations. And it's, it's remarkable that a lot of the messaging is the same. It's resources, it's rights, it is uh, treaty obligations that are not being met by the United States government. And by the way, a lot of people may say, hearing this, well, there's casinos. Well, there's a lot of money involved with that. And that's troublesome to me, especially hearing that come from the East Coast. Now, I was born in New York, so I'm an East Coaster. There are very advanced communities, uh, indigenous communities, that are funded primarily through casino development. But as you get further out in, into this country, they rarely get touched by something like that. Even if they have a casino on a patch of land in North Dakota, 
nobody's going to that casino to put to put their money there. <laughs> well, and the truth is, it used to be an exclusive thing. It used to be that this was a unique proposition. Like, hey, you're on what's considered indigenous land. You want to put a casino? Whatever. But now, and it was a big deal because there weren't casinos everywhere. Now, there are casinos everywhere. And so it's not even a draw anymore for some of these communities. And I'm sure they're they're hurting when this used to be, as you said, their main source of revenue and income and, and support. And I can tell you, from living in Florida as I am now, I read the charter for the state of Florida with the Seminole tribe. And the majority of that money has to be funneled to before the tribe gets any of it. Education, infrastructure, all of that has to be paid for, which, by the way, is an obligation of the United States under treaty. All of that money has to go and pay for that first before it then gets dispersed to the people of the nation. And that is an exclusive rider, I guess you can call it, in in that contract. And by the way, money has to be paid to the state of Florida for that. And money has to be paid to the federal government for special oversight. So if anybody, you know, Joe Blow wants to open up a casino, he has less hoops to jump through to open a casino than an Indian nation does because they have special considerations that the federal government has put on them to be able to open this casino. It's it's really it's mind-blowing once you once you dive into it and do a deep dive. It's it's incredible. I'm sure to our listeners who are hearing this going, "Wow, I didn't realize half of this were issues you know maybe they've heard the sporadic headline the pipeline or mm-hmm. or you know maybe they've seen a sense every so often in time magazine a, a profile of what's going on with the indigenous population but i'm sure you're waking up a lot of people to the real problem that's going on it's interesting the podcast itself so you had podcasting experience or radio experience previously have you found that in doing a podcast for a cause that there are things that you do differently or, you know, things that other cause potters should keep in mind that maybe regular podcasters want to think of? You know, that's a really good question. I know that my fellow podcasters out there do a lot of research. They do a lot of show prep. And I have to say, I spent a lot of my time doing show prep. So I encompass all news I do interviews for stakeholders in indigenous communities. And then there's my commentary on top of it, which this interview has been a a lot of, right? So I think that for what I think is different about this podcast is that I encompass all of those things. So you might tune in one week and I'm, I'm speaking to a chairman of one of the tribes and talking about the issues of his community uh, specifically. And then another week you might tune in and I'm doing the news of the week in Indian country. Uh, And with that, you get all of my passion in that. So we'll talk about the news and then we'll talk about why that is important. Why is it important to you? 
And I think that's that's what makes it just a little bit different. Why is it important to Matthew that I came up with this news story out of uh, a Nebraska newspaper? Why why does this pertain to you? So I I try and make sure that I make that connection with the listener, why it's important to them. Which, I mean, is probably good advice for any podcaster, let alone those who are doing a cause-based podcast. Yep. And then because of your relationship with the 501c3, like how does that help assist, you know, how did that all really come about? So the, the 501c3 came about first. And the reason that I started it was I was volunteering out on the Cheyenne River Reservation for a Habitat for Humanity affiliate out there basically renovating homes because there wasn't enough money to build new homes. And what I found out was that even Habitat for Humanity was not fully engaged in the community, even with this one affiliate on the reservation. And that's where it occurred to me that there was, uh, there's so many things that we could be doing that fall through the cracks so some of the things included, I worked with Sitting Bull College in North Dakota on the Standing Rock Reservation to organize a fishing tournament, a walleye fishing tournament for scholarships for kids to go to college. We also supported cultural programs on the reservation that have to do with horses. Last year, we actually took part in raising money to bring the Nakota horses back to Standing Rock. Mm -hmm. And the, the thing that makes this remarkable, Matthew, is that the Nakota horses, just to give you a little quick story here, are horses that were trapped for generations in Theodore Roosevelt National Park, which is in the upper um, uh, northwestern corner of North Dakota. Significantly, these horses were released in the late 1800s by the United States government after being confiscated from Sitting Bull upon his surrender. Sitting Bull's people still live on the Standing Rock Reservation. These are the Honkpapa Lakota. Uh, Sitting Bull was Honkpapa Lakota. They considered the horse an integral part of their society. And more than that, they considered them relatives. They have not been on this reservation in over 127 years. And with uh, working with a couple of different organizations, we were able to help raise money to bring those horses back to Sitting Bull's people for the first time in over 100 years. Wow. And these are cultural issues that need to be addressed and if we can do anything to help with that to help strengthen this community from the inside rather than you know rely on the government say or rely on other philanthropic organizations that's where the biggest impact is going to come from 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 inside that nation so one step at a time, we're just going to go in and, and help 
in whatever way that we can. We're still a small 501c3, but we do whatever we can. Well, it sounds like you're doing incredible work. I'm sure all the tribes out there, all the ones that you interact with are appreciated. I'm sure you're making a positive impact. Before we let you go, I always ask everybody who does a cause-based podcast, if you have any advice for someone who is you know, either thinking about launching one or doing one and struggling a little bit, you know, what would be that one piece of advice to get someone in, you know, in a similar situation over the hump and, and feeling like a success? If you're on the fence wondering, should I do it or not? I might take a millisecond before I say, do it, do it because every day that you wake up, you're going to realize that you're making a difference and you're going to feel that in your own soul. But when you see physically the impact that it makes on other communities, on other people, that makes it all worth it. So barring any struggles or barriers or challenges that you may see in your way, just barrel right on through and do it. It's, it's not easy, as you well know, Matthew, it's not easy to do a podcast. It's not easy to maintain a presence in this community. And, and a lot of times I fly under the radar because my podcast is so niche, right? It's so small. But here I am, five years in, still doing it, still loving it. And I think that whoever is thinking about doing it will feel that reward a, a hundred times over if they go for it. I love that advice. And I think don't think about massive growth. You know, if you can affect one person, if you can get one listener who does something, who makes a change, uh, it'll probably all have been worth it. Agreed. And to see now over the last five years, there are so many more indigenous news organizations popping up, it really does my heart good. And it makes me think, do I have to do this anymore? A couple of times in the last year, I'm like, do I, should I be doing this anymore? Or should other people take it? And then every once in a while, a story will come out and go, nope, I got to do it. I, no one's hearing this story. I got to do it. So uh, for now, I'm still going strong, but it's great to see that it has maybe inspired other people or that finally people are recognizing the fact that this is an important part of our community as Americans to be able to stand up and create that awareness. I think that's a perfect place to leave us. So we've been chatting with Lou Hastings. He's the host of the Red Road Radio Show. You can find it at Red Road Radio. Dot com And also you can support his 501c3, the Native Now Foundation, nativenowfoundation.org. And of course, as always, we will have a link in the show notes and on the website for you to make direct donations to this charity that Lou has started and that helps support the podcast. Lou Hastings, I am so glad we finally got a chance to do this. It has been a pleasure having you here on CausePods today. Matthew, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. So glad to talk to you and hopefully I'll be seeing you soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of Cause Pods. Again, if you've been inspired by the work of our guests, please check out the show notes in your podcast app or at causepods.org. There you will find links to their work and a special donation link to support their favorite efforts. From there, you can also follow and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you enjoy your podcasts. 
And remember, if you have a cause pod and want to join me for an interview, please check out causepods.org and fill out the interview request form. If approved, we'll schedule you for a chat and share the amazing work you're doing with the CausePod audience. Thanks again, and see you next time on CausePods. Pods.